Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Before we speak with Alex Pearson about her interview with um, Patrick Brown, I want to play for you a piece from the interview between uh, Patrick Brown and Carolyn Jarvis. Uh, Patrick Brown, the former leader of the Ontario PC Party, sat down for an exclusive interview with Global. And uh, in it, Brown addresses the allegations of sexual misconduct that led to his resignation. Here's some of what he told Global's chief investigative correspondent, Carolyn Jarvis. Why are you sitting here today speaking with us? Because I want to expose the truth. I want, I want to find out who's behind this. I want to find out why, why this was done, why I was thrown to the wolves, why people would make up uh, stories about me. Um, I want to get the bottom of this. It's not right. Is this for political reasons, because you want to resurrect your career, or is this personal? It's personal. It, they've, you know, I've dedicated 18 years of my life to public service. I, 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 I was raised um, by a family that cared about treating women properly and with respect. I've got two younger sisters who uh, I adore. I've got a family I adore. They, they, maligned, they maligned my name. They maligned everything I stand for. There is um, Carolyn Jarvis and Patrick Brown. All right, so things are working again, and everything is up and running. It's no longer Houston, we have a problem. We resolved the problem. And joining me on the program, on the show, on the Roy Green Show, is Alex Pearson. She's the host of On Point on the Ontario Chorus Radio Network. She's my colleague, and she's really, really, really good. She interviewed Brown and his sister, and uh, she joins us now. Boy, it's frustrating when nothing works, eh? Don't you love that? Oh. Murphy's Law. Nothing. I mean, talk. <laughs> nothing worked. Nothing. I was just sitting here with a, with, a, with the specter of three hours of monologue in front of me. <laughs> well, I was thinking that. I'm like, you know what? He can pull it off. So he'll just talk. <laughs> I've done it once before. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. Hey, tell me, what, the, what was the yeah. impression that uh, Patrick Brown made on you overall? Well, you know, it's no secret I worked um, on the campaign before coming back to broadcast, so I have a, a bit of a, bit, a different perspective, I think, than most people, because I know the inner team, I know the people behind the scenes, so I know a lot of, like, the ins and outs of this, and I, and I got to know Patrick Brown, who I covered as a reporter for many years, but behind the scenes, I got a chance to know him, and the Patrick Brown um, before this versus the one now are two totally different people. He was, he's a very energetic guy. He's like an energizer bunny. He's just go, go, go. Very kind of mischief. He likes to play little pranks on people, like harmless pranks. Um, and he's a very warm guy, if you get to know him. And the guy I saw in studio uh, was a guy who trusted nobody. He looks exhausted. He is, uh, I think, going through a bit of post-traumatic stress and probably doesn't know it. And... Uh, He's a shell of a man. I mean, at one point, I just kind of said, hey, are you okay? And I put my hand on his, his elbow, and he kind of jerked it back. And that should tell you, like, when you're a guy or someone accused of something like this, I mean, he, he's a jumpier guy. So much more quiet. Normally, we would be able to shoot the breeze, give a hug to one another, just a greeting kind of thing. That's not that. He doesn't trust anybody anymore. Does he gen- that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Does Alex, does he genuinely believe that he's been framed? And is 100%. he saying, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. He, he also feels very betrayed because the inner team, 
you know, when they got the allegation, which he had about four and a half hours to respond, which in our world of broadcast is nothing. So why that team did not say, hold on a second here, we are going to go talk to our lawyers and you can just wait for this response, give us at least 12 hours, which would normally be a negotiation I think anybody would 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 allow. I mean, a story this big, a network should want to make sure that they give appropriate response time to the person being accused. Um, you know, he had about four and a half hours to respond, and the inner team, you know, said, you know, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out and have this press conference. Here's what you're going to say. They crafted a statement. They had a plan after he gave that statement. He would meet them afterwards in, a, in a, an office. And at the time that he was giving this statement, we see across Twitter that en masse, this very, very close team, and you've got to understand, they would spend every day with him, inner circle, the most trusted advisors you've got, they resigned en masse. And then if you've seen the footage of him walking out, he had to walk out by himself with cameras chasing mm-hmm. him. And uh, that that should never have happened, and he had no idea. So here's a guy, shell-shocked, accused of something, up against the wall, and the team that he is supposed to be shielded by and trusted had bailed on him. So he felt extremely betrayed because he had no idea. I, I watched him say that when he, as he was making his speech or the, the news conference that he gave, that was, really wasn't a news conference, but he got up and he, he seemed so nervous, and clearly was, tremendously nervous about what was going on. He said when he left, as he was delivering that speech, his staff were resigning on Twitter as he was yep. doing that. Yep. Yeah. So that should that, that, that should speak to the fact that it, it was in some way planned because who would do that? I mean, if you've got a team and they have your back and you trust these people, they get through this. Um, and, and, and from a purely strategic reason, if you had an allegation, if I were to be accusing Roy Green of something this severe, which essentially was that he preyed upon underage girls and plied them with liquor, which is a very serious allegation, um, you know, your, your team would want to come up with a strategy, which would be, I think, in most people's view, okay, you go out the next day when everyone's had a time to go through everything, come up with a, a, a comment, and, you know, he was not prepared to make that comment. He was shell-shocked, for one. If you see him... He was so out of, I think, he was in such disarray, he, he couldn't even deliver it properly. He had been crying, he had been upset, his world is crumbling. Um, and so that never should have happened. But again, if, as he says, that he's at, in the middle of a political hit, that would mean, you know, let him be as damaged as he could. And that was a pretty damaging press conference, I think you'll, you'll agree. Yes, it was. Um, and then he went so. away for a few days. He said he hid from the world. Um, which I think is totally understandable, and he had had surgery uh, a couple of days over uh, later because he had a cyst on his um, his back that he that they were checking to make sure it was not uh, something more severe. And it was when he was in the hospital in the waiting room wearing a baseball cap, kind of incognito, that someone came up and put their hand on him and said, "Hey, Patrick, you know, we we believe you." And then a number of people in the waiting room kind of put their arms around him or clapped and said, "Yeah, we've got your back." Because he's very popular in Barry. He's been in in office. You know, for a long time and done a lot for his community. So he had that support. I don't know if it was that, uh, maybe a combination of seeing how Steve Payton came back at his accuser just a few days before saying, hold on a second here. I am not going to put up with this. I'm going to swing back and clear my name, which Steve Payton, you know, adamantly denied that he had done anything. Maybe that was the pendulum swinging back. But Patrick said at that point, he knew that he had to get up and fight back and say, I didn't do this, and I'm going to prove why. And and, he, and it's unbelievable what he has come back and disproved in such a, you know, people say three weeks. You know, the fact that he's been able to kind of 
chip away at the um, allegations and really bring credibility issues into play this soon and then jump into a leadership race is, is unbelievable. What do you make of the fact that he's gone back into the leadership race, knowing the party can just kick him out anytime they want? Well, I mean, they shouldn't be able to. He, here's, the, here's the thing. He was elected, whether you like him or not, democratically, whether it was fair or not. He democratically won the leadership of this party. So if Patrick Brown is to fail, he should fail in an election on the policy he puts forward. That's how the system works. He should be he shouldn't if he's cleared and didn't do anything wrong, he shouldn't have to run for any leadership because that means it was taken from him. So I'm hearing a lot of people saying, well, he should just go away. But I think you have to think if this were you. You know, you've worked your whole life to get where you are. You're riding in the polls. You've got a clear path to victory on June 7th. And all of a sudden, it's taken away in a devastating career hit uh, political blow. You're thinking, well, why am I not? Why am I going down in flames? I didn't do anything. I think anybody would come back and say, hold the heck on. I'm going to fight this and I'm going to win. So I think people are going to be underestimated how much support he still has. Do you, though, do you discount now uh, the accusations made by the two women? I certainly question them. Look, they didn't—they didn't smell right from the beginning. Um, I don't like anybody coming forward anonymously. First of all, I think it's very unfair to those who find themselves accused, and whether it's him or any other person, I think it's very unfair. You know, when you've got a national network um, with as much power as the one that was presenting the story, most people will believe them because you know you're supposed to be believing them that they would have done their due diligence. But if you start looking at the story in its totality, and the fact that they got the age wrong of one of the accusers, the fact that, you know, they did not declare a conflict of interest, that one of the reporters was apparently working on the story and knew one of the accusers, that those things chip away at credibility. And um, I, I suspect that while they are kind of standing up to the story, there's certainly many in our business who are saying, hold on a second, this does not smell right. And I know, and you know, I mean, our company is very cautious about putting anything on there unless it's, you know, quadruple checked. If you're going to go on a story that has such enormous political ramifications like this, you don't just lawyer at once. It's going through three or four vettings, and mm-hmm. you make sure that every dot is crossed, every T is crossed, every I is dotted. Got to jump in. Alex, I have to yeah, jump in. Right. I have to jump in because that's all our time. Thank you so much for joining us, and it was great to hear the interview that you did with Patrick Brown and get the insights because you know the man personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to be talking with Carolyn Marooney before the end of the hour. It'll be interesting to hear what she has to say about these developments. Yeah, Yeah. take care. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, Roy. Alex Pearson on point is her program. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So while the Conservative Party, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, has its own challenges and messy situation to resolve, and they will, and my sense is they will very quickly jettison Patrick Brown from the leadership race, and this won't be over, but that's what the party's response will be. And we'll talk to Caroline Mulrooney before the end of the hour. While they have their own problems, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario has its problems. A former Liberal cabinet minister is accused of sexually assaulting a staff member. The Premier's office stated uh, yesterday that they were unaware of the case. The lawyer representing the woman in question is John Nunziata himself, a former federal member of parliament. And he joins me on uh, the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. John, thank you very much for, for the time. And from your years in parliament... Do accusations of sexual misconduct 
by MPs, cabinet ministers, even provincial members of legislatures. Does that surprise you at all? No, not at all. Um, it's a whole new world, Roy, um, with social media, with a change in uh, values um, that has occurred over the last number of years. Um, there is a silver lining to all of this, and that is um, young women like my daughter, she's 23 years old, will not have to subject themselves to any of the behavior that was accepted in years gone by. You know, John, I... Uh, I spoke, very little was done about it. Yeah. I spoke with a lawyer, just as you were saying that, I remembered speaking with a lawyer in Toronto, maybe three years ago, two or three years ago, and he'd written a piece, an op-ed piece, in one of the city's newspapers, in which he had stated that it has been his practice, as it was for many lawyers who handled sexual assault complaints from women who came into their offices, their advice was, drop it and walk away. And the advice was given because they said to the women, when you go to court, it is going to be he said, she said, and it's going to be nasty, and you'll be identified, and that will never, ever be something that you can just make disappear. So probably better for you to just walk away from it unless you have definitive proof of what took place. And it's not a he said, she said. He said he was changing his view after, walked, after walking into his little daughter's bedroom, two or three-year-old daughter, and said, I never want her to go through that. So I'm contrasting what I was told just a couple of years ago was fairly routine for lawyers to say, don't go to court because it'll be he said, she said, and it's going to be something that's going to be following you through life as well to what's happening today where women are with determination stepping forward and saying, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me a number of years ago. And perhaps they're being so adamant now because they might have been told when they first stepped forward, don't do it. Yes, uh, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, but there are still a lot of women, uh, victims, uh, whether they be male or, or female, that are not coming forward because uh, of how difficult it is to... Um, to come forward and, and make allegations. The, the criminal justice system does not move quickly. It's not always fair. And it's very difficult when you're a victim. And at the end of the day, um, the person's either convicted or acquitted. We have a presumption of innocence. You have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So it is a, a pretty high standard. There is also the civil court that is available to women and men who have been sexually abused. There is a, a cause of action for civil um, sexual assault. Uh, but in either case, it's still very difficult um, emotionally for complainants to come forward. Um, what's missing at Queen's Park today and in Ottawa and other jurisdictions is a, a, a it's a process, an independent process that people are aware of. Uh, the premier, with regard to the case I'm involved in now, said that there is a process, but no one seems to know what the process is, and certainly wasn't uh, my client wasn't advised what the process is. So now I'm in consultation with the premier's lawyer to come up with a process that will be fair 
and independent. And I'm suggesting that the integrity commissioner, who currently is a former associate chief justice, that uh, that office handled these types of complaints. I spoke to the integrity commissioner yesterday, and he's not sure that he has the legislative mandate to take on these matters. And when I spoke to the lawyer for the premier, Jack Siegel, uh, I suggested to him that perhaps the government should give him his office, the legislative mandate. I'm sure both opposition leaders would agree, and I'm reaching out to them to get their agreement so they could pass legislation and regulations in a day to accommodate or to deal with this matter. The Premier's lawyer is suggesting a workplace um, investigator, in other words, bringing in a lawyer to investigate, but there's no entrenched or legislated mandate for that. And um, I think victims would be more comfortable going before an organization or a body that can keep the process confidential Mm -hmm. and that they will be assured that they will be given a fair hearing. And at the end of the day, recommendations can be made, uh, conclusions can be drawn. And what's what's important is that there would be due process, uh, something that was denied Patrick Brown. Uh, with regard to my client, uh, she believes very strongly in due process. So, um, John, let me ask you this. What is your client alleging, and is the minister, the, the, the person who is either still a minister or was a minister, is that person still in government, and is that person still in cabinet? No, it's uh, it involves a former cabinet minister, a former MPP, um, but and my client immediately reported it to the uh, legislative uh, at Queen's Park, the uh, independent uh, human resources department. And not surprisingly, they referred her back to the Liberal Caucus um, Services Bureau, which is the partisan group that deals with the Liberal Caucus. What year would that have been, John? About 10 years ago. Okay. And she dealt with it. She filed the complaint. She was interviewed by people. Uh, Notes were taken. Surprisingly, the notes appear to have been disappeared now. The records have disappeared. And by the time she got back to her office, she received a call from the premier's office to say, pack your things, you are no longer working for that MPP. And which premier was that now? At the time, uh, I can't give any further details at this point. Okay, I understand uh, that there's limits to what you can share with me. She was reassigned, Mm -hmm. uh, and and then for a by-election that was going on at the time, and then after that they said, we have no more work for you, and she became unemployed, which is tantamount to constructive dismissal. And uh, over the past 10 years, uh, it's been very difficult for her. So what do you expect and is going to happen now? We have about a minute left, John. Well, she's what? not, see, she is not, uh, she has options. I put all the options forward to her. Rather than saying, uh, advising her not to go to the local police station, I said, from what you've told me, a criminal assault took place. This is one option open to you. You also have the option 
to bring civil action. She doesn't. Today, Roy, there's several courts you can go to. There's the um, criminal court, there's the civil court, and there's the court of public opinion. And that latter court seems to be what's happening a lot these days, and it puts pressure on elected officials and others. So what she's hoping for, what her legacy could be, is that a process is set up, something that I've suggested, for example, the integrity commissioner, so all victims will know uh, that they can come forward, and, and those that were responsible for uh, sexual misconduct and other forms of harassment could be held accountable. Yeah, it is necessary for for a process to be in place that is effective, that is quick at getting going, and providing support to the people who require the support, and not have them meandering around in a system they already mistrust. John, it's great talking to you again. Thank you for taking the time to. Uh, share as much information with us as you could about the case. My pleasure, Roy. You take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. John Nunziata, former Liberal Member of Parliament, of course, lawyer, uh, sharing what he can, because he can't tell us everything that's going on. There's the client privilege, but uh, sharing with us what he can about the case with the former employee of a cabinet minister who she alleges was guilty of sexual assault. The old days, not so far away, not so long ago, though, right, where she got fired. She spoke up. She wanted help, and they fired her. That's one of the reasons that women are nervous or unsure about stepping forward. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Let's stay with the situation in the province of Ontario, and particularly the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, and its quest to find a leader. Caroline Mulrooney joins me on uh, The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. She's, of course, one of the one of the contestants. It almost feels like a competition now. Uh, Ms. Mulrooney, is your campaign progressing as you had hoped it would, as you planned it to progress, without all of the sidebar interference? Well, thank you for having me on your show, Ron. Um, my campaign is progressing uh, as I'd hoped. We are building support every day. I have uh, endorsements from fellow nominated candidates and caucus members, and I am getting supporters from across the province. So it is progressing as uh, as I've hoped. You know, you mentioned the interference. I'm just focused on my campaign and making sure that I am in the strongest position and able to win, which I plan to do. Let's talk about the carbon tax. That's been a major issue that's gotten so many of my callers, not only in Ontario but across the country, engaged. So you're for no carbon tax. Will you also, if you become the premier of the province, shut down the wind government's cap-and-trade scheme with Quebec and California? Yes, I said that I would do that. All right, let's get on to another issue. Do you have a plan for Ontario's massive debt accumulated by the Wynn government? Your children's children's allowances are already spoken for. Ron, you bring up the reason I got into this in the first place. Uh, I have been working in the private sector, had a good job, and uh, love raising my children here. And I was very concerned uh, at the, the fact that... Uh, under the Liberals, our debt has doubled and that we pay uh, $12 billion in interest expense a year. 
We only pay more in health care and education. And so that's money that we can't spend on the programs and services that Ontarians expect. And it is something that jeopardizes our ability to, to, to be a prosperous province, uh, create jobs for future generations. So you bring up the issue I, I, I got into this uh, in the first place for. So, so what's, the most fundamental, you know, what's the most fundamental thing you're going to do to address this debt that we have? Look at the Auditor General's reports. They're frightening. They are. The first thing we have to do is get uh, our, the size and cost of our government under control. And the only way we're going to do that is if uh, we defeat the Liberals, because uh, they've found a way to create a culture of waste for the last 15 years. And fiscal responsibility, fiscal management is the first thing we're going to have to do. And you mentioned the Auditor General. She did, uh, in, she had a report a, a few weeks ago uh, citing that she had reviewed 14 programs out of over 100 and found a billion dollars of waste. So we, we need a change of government. We need uh, a PC government to get in there and actually uh, introduce some fiscal management in, uh, on Queen's Park and our spending. Let me come back to that issue of the uh, cap and trade with Ontario, California, and Quebec. You said that you would shut it down. That's what all the candidates have said. How would you do that? How would you go about that? Are there no safeguards in place that would make it difficult for the next Premier of Ontario to actually do this? The cap-and-trade system is uh, is not as straightforward to undo as, uh, as you know, one might think or as you're alluding to. Uh, I'm not. I'm not alluding to that no, at no. all. Yeah, no, 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 I just, no, people might think, and you're right, it, it, it is complicated. We've, we're going to have to, it's been phased in over time. We've just joined the WCI, so there are a number of steps that we're going to have to take to undo it, and it's not going to happen happen right away. Uh, so we, uh, you know, we we have to make sure that when we, we roll things back or when we undo things that we do it in the right way. Yeah, but do you have a plan? I have a plan to get elected and make sure that when we look at the cap-and-trade system, that we, uh, when we roll it back and when we undo it, we do it in the, in the right way. Canadian voters at the moment are dealing with political royalty in office with Justin Trudeau as the Prime Minister of Canada. There's increasing concern about Mr. Trudeau's decisions and behavior, like the veterans want too much, cutting a check for $10.5 million for Omar Khadr and issuing a ridiculous excuse for doing so, his seeming preoccupation with declaring Canadians to be racist by saying we can do better. Ms. Mulroney, uh, you are, for better or worse, political royalty. How will your experience growing up with your father as prime minister affect your governing style? My father left office when I was 19 years old, and uh, I am very proud of his, uh, his work and his legacy, uh, but, uh, but I'm coming to this with my own career and my own experience, um, my, uh, my father has influenced me in the way that I saw him fight very hard for policies that were not popular when, uh, when he brought them in, but he implemented them and fought for them because he thought they were right. And so what I learned uh, early on in life is that uh, you've got to do what you think is right, regardless of whether it's popular or not. And, uh, and the fact that people of all parties are fighting today for NAFTA uh, is proof that uh, that 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 when you when you believe in what's right and you fight for it, that uh, that you people will come around eventually. And so that's why I got involved, uh, and that's why I put my name forward uh, to be a candidate uh, for this for this election. Okay, we do. We have about I a minute. Believe- I'm sorry, we have about a minute left. So I do have to ask you about how the dynamics involving 
Patrick Brown, I'll ask the other candidates as well, how that in fact affects your campaign going forward. Mr. Brown has now declared he's a candidate again. The party can decide he isn't, but at the moment he is. Does that affect you in any way? Ron, the introduction of a new candidate in the race affects all of us, uh, but we can only I can only do what I can do, which is uh, you know call supporters, meet as many supporters, meet as many uh, members of this party as possible. Um, put forth a, a plan that will be ready for voters to to evaluate. I can only do the best that I can, and and uh, and that's what I have been doing, and that's what I will continue to do. I think that we have an opportunity here for a real change. We need a new face. We need somebody who's new to politics, and that is more true today than than it has been before. And I believe that after 15 years. Uh, people in Ontario want uh, want a big change, and uh, as leader of the PC party, I plan to, to do that and to win. All right. I thank you for the time. Good speaking with you. Thank you, Ron. Bye-bye. It's Roy. Uh, Caroline Mulrooney, she corrected me. I said Caroline, so she corrected me. So, fair is fair. It's Roy, R-O-Y. My brother's name is Ron. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I know I speak on behalf of millions of Canadians when uh, I say that our hearts go out to uh, Colton Bushy's family, uh, his mom Debbie, uh, his friends, uh, and the entire community. I'm not going to comment on the process that led us to this point today, uh, but I am going to say we have come to this point as a country uh, far too many times. So there's uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and did Justin Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould declare Mr. Stanley, uh, Gerald Stanley, guilty and declare the all-white jury to be racist and capable or unwilling to find a white man guilty in the murder of an Aboriginal man? This is a question that's been asked over the last several days. Many questions asked about the uh, second-degree murder trial of Gerald Stanley in the death of 22-year-old Colton Bushy. There is concern among some lawyers that Justin Trudeau and the Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General interfered with and are interfering with the Canadian justice system by speaking out as they have. For the Minister of Justice and the Prime Minister to meet with the family of the dead man and insist Canadians can and must do better, which is a frequently repeated mantra from the Trudeau government whenever race is an issue in the news, could be interpreted as two federal government leaders accusing the jury in the Gerald Stanley murder trial of being made up of racists. I said that before, and I'm hearing that from folks who are sending me emails and and uh, making their opinions known that way. The jury members cannot defend themselves publicly because they're, by law, not permitted to speak about the case or the deliberation and verdict. There's uh, been little talk about what happened at the farm of Mr. Stanley the day of the shooting of Colton Bushy. So there's a lot to talk about. My guests are Jean Taye. She's a lawyer in British Columbia. She's the great-grandniece of historic Métis leader Louis Riel and a defender of Indigenous rights. She won a significant Supreme Court of Canada decision on Métis fishing rights. Ms. Taylor, thank you very much for taking the time. Nice to be here. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, executive director of the Canadian Police Association and a security and justice policy analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Hey, Scott. Does the not guilty verdict for Gerald Stanley require the national reaction it has received, the denunciations of the jury that have been issued, the personal intervention of the prime minister and the federal minister of justice, 
or given how our court system and criminal justice system demands a criminal trial is held, Ms. Paye, did, did, the, uh, did the trial proceed according to protocol, and was the verdict properly arrived at? Well, the, the was the, <laughs> that's a big mouthful you just swallowed there. Um, I'm, I, I, I think that what we see is that the, there were um, several peremptory challenges made um, and that the composition of the jury appears to be um, appears to be uh, representative of one part of the community. That's what the appearance is, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's really at issue here: is that the jury is supposed to um, fulfill two functions. One, it's supposed to be the conscience of the community, and by that I mean the whole community. And it's also supposed to, because it is a representative um, selection of the whole community, it's supposed to garner faith in the justice system because of the way it works. And I think that's what is the issue here, is the appearances here. And I think that I wouldn't jump so quickly to say that the justice minister and the prime minister were slagging the jury themselves as so much as the problem we have of appearances and the fact that the jury does not appear to represent the whole community and what it certainly has done is not created any faith in the justice system and or um, smoothed out any of the problems in the community. So I think if you just flipped it around the other way, and, and I always find this a useful exercise, let's just imagine for a minute what would be happening if the jury had gone the other way, if the jury had found Mr. Stanley guilty, I think we would have been hearing a lot of cries of, see, they played the race card kind of thing, which we've heard in other situations. So I think the clear message from this is that this trial has uh, highlighted a big problem that we have in Canada and so I think it is worthy of us all talking about it and taking a look at what happened here and whether there's something we can do to make it better because clearly nobody in Saskatchewan, either on the Stanley side of it or on the, the uh, Colton Bushy side of it, is happy with how this happened or feel like it solved any problems. And that's a problem for all of us. Yeah, you know, we cannot at this point ignore what's been said. We cannot ignore the verdict. We cannot make ignore the make, makeup of the jury. It's all very important for us to discuss and, and get at. Has though, and I'll ask you one more question before I ask Mr. Newark a question. There have been lawyers who've said the prime minister's intervention or reaction and response and the justice minister's reaction and response may very well have clouded the opportunity for an appeal. Do you agree with that? No, not at all. I don't believe for a moment that the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal would consider that in any way at all in uh, deciding whether they will take give leave to, on this appeal. I don't think it will have any bearing on the Crown's decision to as to whether it's going to seek an appeal. I don't think it will play out at all. In there, I think that also I think it's a big leap to say that the, that their uh, comment again I'd flip it around the other way. Usually nobody comments on that, and we think that that is actually 
um, a good thing, but it's actually a comment just by virtue of not commenting. Yeah. It's a comment of saying, oh, well, that's the norm, let's let it go. And the fact that they did comment, and I'm not sure you can say that it's a direct comment on the jury, that the jury did a bad thing. I think they're expressing some of the sadness that Aboriginal people in this country feel. And I also think that my earlier comments about the fact that this hasn't resolved anything because it doesn't represent the whole community and people, and it hasn't built any faith. In fact, it's undermined our faith in the justice system. I think they think that's something that needs looking at, and I agree with them on that. But it won't have any effect on whether the appeal goes through at all. I do not believe that our judges are so susceptible <laughs> to that kind of comment. They're, they're good people who know their jobs and know what they need to look at. Scott, where do you stand? Is, is, when, when race is involved in, clearly involved in a case, in a, in a capital murder case, um, does, is, is our justice system unwieldy, too unwieldy at this point, uh, or not? Well, um, I don't really think so. The, and and in, in many ways, that's what I found the most disturbing about the Justice Minister and Prime Minister's remarks was that it... Um, they and I agree that I, d- I don't know that it was so much targeted at the individual jury uh, as it was that somehow the system itself um, had a racist component to it, and that's what undermines public confidence in our justice system. Comments like that, and in particular, um, the thing that struck me about it was, uh, you know, I don't. I'm pretty sure that uh, neither Justin Trudeau nor uh, the uh, justice minister were in the courtroom and knew specifically what had taken place. And before you make assumptions like that, uh, I think it's important that you actually know the facts of the case. And as there's a, there was an excellent story that ran this week, uh, Candace Malcolm in the uh, Toronto Sun tracked down somebody who was in the, uh, the jury pool uh, for their observations of what exactly took place, and it completely negates what it was that was the sort of standardized message coming out of this, that there was somehow some kind of uh, racist implication to this about uh, uh, Aboriginal people uh, being excluded from the jury. So I really think that the, especially with our justice system being founded as it is on public confidence, those kinds of ill-informed remarks are not helpful in the slightest, because, and I do agree with, uh, with your other uh, uh, guest that uh, there is a major issue in terms of trying to improve that sense of public confidence, that the uh, ownership, if you will, of the justice system within um, Aboriginal communities. And there's actually, I think, been some positive developments out of this because there's been some very good uh, work published on how it is the jury pools are selected and improvements we can potentially make to ensure that the, uh, there's appropriate representation, as well about uh, whether or not we even need these peremptory uh, challenges uh, to exist in the, in the criminal code uh, at all. I think those are legitimate questions that need to be asked and answered, but I think the intervention here and the automatic, if you will, you know, reaction that there must have been some kind of a racist implication here are completely inappropriate. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. From the Battleford News Optimist, the Saskatchewan Trial Lawyers Association has issued a statement against unfair accusations in after the math of Gerald Stanley trial, which concluded in Battleford recently with a non-guilty verdict. The statement issued by the president on behalf of the association says the judge, lawyers, and jury have had unfair and unwarranted comments directed towards them. All right, my guests on this question, and again, the fundamental question appears to be, 
Is our justice system systemically unfair to indigenous people? That's the question that's that's asked. And uh, other questions spring from that, of course. With me, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, and uh, Jean Taille, she's a lawyer and uh, grandniece of Louis Riel, a defender of indigenous rights. Ms. Ms. Taille, let me ask you and Mr. Newark to speak with each other without my interference or my asking questions, which may take you off your trains of thought. We're 20 minutes into this. Uh, where, where does the discussion need to go now, the one we're having? Uh, I would say the discussion needs to acknowledge... I, I do think that Aboriginal people are, uh, in their mindset um, and in their participation and in every way, not, uh, not feeling that our, especially our criminal justice system, is... Uh, is something that they understand that they um, that they have any faith in. They feel like you know the the lovely symbol we have of the lady with the blind uh, justice with the scales. I think they feel like that little blind that little rag that's around her head is fir- that it's slipped up a little bit and one eye is beetly fixed on them. I, I'm not saying all this is right. I'm just saying that's the feeling there that the system isn't working and. So when you have a large part of your population who feel like this, that's a problem. And and because we know, uh, and I think Scott would agree, the only reason our our laws work in this country is because we have 99% compliance with them. Most people agree with them. Most people live by them. Most people accept them and, and endorse them. And we need that to continue. But what we have is a very growing, alienated population of Aboriginal people, particularly on the prairies, who are opting and acting and living outside this system and not uh, for, for all kinds of reasons, but that's what's happening. Now, it's a problem, and we all have to get together, not just one side, but both sides. Okay. We have to sit down, roll up our sleeves, and try and figure out what we're going to do about this. Scott? Yeah, I think, I think that a, a, is a good point, because we just make the assumption uh, that frankly, as a general sort of a population of Canada, that we have public confidence in our justice system, quite quite frankly, because it's seen as being our justice system. And I don't think that is as anywhere near a shared perception in um, Indigenous communities, on, uh, including on reserves as well, too. And so I think it, it makes very good sense to try to find ways that we can make the people who are uh, living there and who are aboriginals come to the conclusion that in fact this justice system is also their justice system and it serves them so i think there's been some steps in the uh... in the recent years in terms of increasing uh, for example uh, tribal policing i think that's a good idea i was involved uh, in, in my judicial district it was on we had uh... uh... hobima it's been renamed but there were four bands there and i uh, helped get a tribal police force set up and we actually implemented something it was in effect like a diversion system using community resources as opposed to sort of the formalized structure. Those kinds of things I think are important so that you uh, don't have this sense of, uh, of alienation and instead there's a greater recognition which produces that greater confidence that in fact this is also their system and they're involved in it. So here's a question that I, I have. I have to ask this question. I have to ask this question. Doesn't all white jury cause necessarily uh, a lack of confidence if that all-white jury is 
is is deciding on either um, a, a Caucasian defendant or an indigenous defendant. Does it matter really ultimately? Why not, why not also a Somali defendant? Huh? Well, it, I mean, also, I think what you have to do is look at, it's not just, if, if it was just that this once you had an all-white jury and an Aboriginal defendant, that would be one thing. But it's when there's a, a track record of it, that's when it starts to build up, Roy. That's okay. what the problem is. So but one of the things I've heard... Just, let's just, wait a minute, just put this in the context of the southern United States and all those white juries that... Um, condemned black men, right? So, and that is whether that person did it or not. It just builds up a perception, and that's what's happening here. No, I get it. it perception becomes reality, right? Perception yeah. becomes reality. But I've also heard that there were opportunities for uh, Aboriginal Indigenous people to be on that Stanley jury, and right. and that didn't happen. Why not? Correct. The in fact, the that's the in Candace Malcolm story is that uh, approximately half of the people that actually showed up for the, uh, the jury pool uh, were, from this person's perspective, just less than half were actually uh, Indigenous uh, people. Uh, and quite properly, there is an initial step in the process as you go through and you see if anybody's uh, unable to serve as a juror. They may know um, either uh, the, uh, the accused person or the deceased or you know, police officers, things like that. And approximately half of those individuals that were Aboriginal uh, excused themselves from the process. So it wasn't that they weren't in that pool that was there, but through the legitimate process, they themselves excused themselves, and it sounds like properly, from the jury process. And that following that, there were um, some pretty outrageous remarks being made by some of those people about uh, how the uh, this guy should get hanged and... Things that would properly attract uh, individuals who are making those remarks being excused for cause. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. This is such, a, this is such I think, a, a pivotal moment for us in understanding our justice system. And if we take advantage of it, we might all come out better for it. Uh, I hope I'm not overstating, but jury selection has been a point of much discussion. We've heard a great deal about peremptory challenges. Let's get to this whole issue of who's on a jury, who can decide fairly, and is there a perception that, okay, you're not like me. You don't speak my language, or you're not the same skin color, or you don't have the same ethnic background as me, so how can you possibly judge me fairly? Uh, let's, Let's talk about that. Ms. Taya, why don't you start us off? I think there's a lot of a lot of things at play in in this discussion. I I wanted to go back though to something Scott said, which is that people made comments like "I'm going to hang them" and things like that, and that that was a legitimate reason for putting people out of the pool. I I get it from the perspective that Scott's saying that that would be seen that way, but I think there might be another way to look at those things. I think that's a loud statement from. Um, a perspective, a person who's been called into jury duty saying, want to participate in any system that is judging Colton Bushi, and I'm going to just loudly say something like that because I will not take part in what they would maybe perceive as a lynching party. And then the, uh, so that's one thing to understand that may be going on there. And then another thing that might be going on is that you have a whole community of Aboriginal people who are 
so angry about, you know, this is like, you know, a lot of ways it's like a, a can of worms, right? You pull up one worm and it's attached to another worm and another worm and the whole community is bruised. And so you touch it in one place, it raises five other bruises in another place. So the idea that the whole community is angry and they're not very well schooled at hiding that under the nice Canadian politeness. And so it comes out that I think those are all things that are playing. I'm not using those as excuses or I'm not disputing your facts about the content of the pool. I'm just saying that there are other, there are ways to understand why people are acting the way they are and what they're doing that I think are not easily being, that are not readily being looked at. So the other issue is you're saying, well, aren't we all the same? Shouldn't we all be, you know, color? This, is about, this isn't about color, right? It's not necessarily, it, this isn't just a color issue or a race issue. These are people who have their own histories here. They weren't brought here as individuals. There's a whole long history of their people, and they have a whole different way of thinking about justice and a whole different way of understanding how to fix wrongs in a community. And so they're, they're, and they're very puzzled by ours, and that is fact, right? They don't understand our system. They, they just look at us and say, you do what? Why would you do that? What good do you think that's going to do? They don't necessarily buy. We think our system's perfect, right? We think it's wonderful. It's the best. Like this, and they just look at us and say, they're crazy. Okay, Scott? Yeah, as I say, I'm not sure I'd go to perfect, but uh, just just to... (laughs) You're right, I exaggerate. (laughs) Yeah. On the the two points, the, uh, the fact of the individual who's there for a jury pool and is making remarks, uh, in effect, uh, prejudging the individual that he is uh, guilty. Uh, frankly, if I was there and I was the prosecutor, even though, you know, theoretically that's what I'm, I'm doing is presenting evidence for a conviction, actually it's to get at the truth, but even if I was the, the crown on that case and I heard somebody say that, I would have stepped up and said this person should be uh, not allowed to serve on the jury. It's pursuant to Section 638, subsection 1B, which says... Um, a prosecutor or an accused is entitled to any number of challenges on the ground that a juror is not indifferent between the queen and the accused. In other words, somebody's showing bias. And that's the whole point. And I think what's, what's really disturbing as well, too, is here are these people who legitimately have the feelings that you're describing, but when they act the way that they do and say things like that, they're the ones that are causing themselves being excluded and thus creating the scenario by which they say, well, oh, there wasn't the appropriate representation on the, on the jury. I think there needs to be some, a part of the, the longer-term solution also needs to be some candid looking in the mirror and acceptance of some responsibility. The things, uh, you know, uh, this is not necessarily inherently because of some other kind of racism, but because our justice system is seeking that kind of uh, neutrality before somebody is uh, sworn in as a juror. To your other, your other point, or the, the larger issue, I think the uh, uh, misunderstanding or lack of confidence in the justice system within the, uh, the Aboriginal uh, communities in many measures is because of the fact of the way, it, and as you say, it's not simply something about uh, skin color, it's culture, and it's a culture in many ways of um, seg- segregation and oppression through the reserve system, and it's created this set of circumstances where uh, 
Um, Aboriginal people are grossly overrepresented in our justice system, but it's not because of, in my opinion, in my experience, it's not because of, because of some inherent racism in the justice system. They're overrepresented because they disproportionately are committing crimes. And the real question should be, why is that? But I think that's a question for our larger political system as to how it is that we have, over hundreds of years, in effect created this process with this kind of a result. And fixing the justice system so as to try to address some of these imbalances, and like we talked about before, where local Aboriginal communities in effect take ownership of the justice system, those are important components in this. But it gets sidetracked by these allegations of racism, which I think are essentially unfounded. Okay, I have two minutes. Yeah, I have two minutes, Miss. I have two minutes. So I, please answer Scott, but then can you weave in an answer to this? Are the societal divides too great for this trial and this verdict to not create additional problems? Um, I, th- I think that, first of all, I think we know why people, why the Aboriginal people are overrepresented in the system. And it's a train that starts when they get scooped as kids from their parents and they get put into a... Uh, Um, care and that's like the caboose on the train so they end up in that car and then they move from there and they get you know moved around 20 30 sometimes 48 times i've heard and then they end up in juvie and then they end up on uh it's big it's a big train car we know the the route that train is on and we know when they get on the train and we know where it's leading so the problem is that we keep trying to use the justice system which is a very blunt instrument to fix what are big social problems. So I, th- I would say that's one of the biggest, biggest I, I agree. Uh, I agree with that. I think we also need to address why they got on the train in the first place. Absolutely. I agree and completely. That's because of we, these are bigger created. issues than yeah. justice issues. So. Yeah. This is why I'm right. asking, is this particular trial going to create additional divisions uh, between different groups ethnic groups, racial groups, linguistic groups, because it's, more, it's going to be more than just Aboriginals and whites. Yeah. Well, hopefully hopefully not, and it's why I was... Well, that's what I'm asking, Scott. Hopefully I agree, but the reality of it, it, will, it will it create more problems? No, the problems are there. Or dialogue. Already. This isn't more problems. This is just highlighting the existing ones, and we've been here before with Leo mm-hmm. Lachance. We've been here before with multiple other situations before the issue is are we going to do anything about it we know what this none of this is new none of it and for example let's take something positive we don't need to have peremptory challenges why do we get rid of those get rid of them all right tell us for those people who are not sure what peremptory challenges are what are they essentially it's a provision of the uh of the criminal code in um section uh, 634 where basically defense counsel and prosecutors are just allowed to say I don't want that person to be on the jury, and I don't have to give any reasons for it. We don't okay. need that. Right. And by the way, it's there is been, an it's been removed in other not allowed to use too. a peremptory challenge on the grounds of uh, uh, gender. Let me ask you. Let me ask you both this: What's the question that I ask my callers? Well, I have time for about ten minutes for phone calls. What's the question that has to be asked now? Um, personally, I would suggest. Uh, I, I, I try to put it onto a positive focus. Are there ways we can improve the operation of our justice system so as to reduce these kinds of uh, tensions and claims of uh, racial discrimination? Ms. Tye, what would you ask? Well, I, I, I'd 
sort of lobbies who say that I think our our whole justice system needs a rethink, um, needs a needs a tune up and a modernization and uh, a way to. Okay, now your now your telephone is now your telephone's winking out tech technically or technologically. Thank you both Sorry. for joining us, Gene Taye and uh, Scott Newark. Thank you. Okay. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. For over a year now, we've been speaking about the people you normally don't hear about in media. You don't hear very much about them. And there are many, many, many of them. Millions. And those are people who live with intractable pain. People who live with chronic agony and the system ignores them the health care system ignores them the politicians have written them off and it's about their opioid medications now I would not have talked about this issue this weekend except for something that I saw on Twitter from Dr. Thomas Klein it's his latest list of chronic pain patients who committed suicide and I want to read this to you before I talk to Dr. Klein He's one of the very few doctors, as I said earlier, who stand by these patients who go through a living hell and who are treated as though they were a nuisance. Alison Kimberly. Alison posted on Instagram describing how she was treated as an addict and sent away without pain medicine. Quote, I was rushed to the ER because my pain was out of control. I couldn't take it anymore. I got zero help. After seven hours, I was discharged. The nurse had the nerve to say that my kind of pain shouldn't be that bad, and basically I was faking for medication. I'm so beside myself I'm shaking as I type this, screaming and begging in pain, needing any kind of help they give me, and I was just sent home. As soon as I'm able, I'm reporting my whole experience. Allison did not have time to file a complaint against the hospital, as she violently ended her life while her mother walked her dog, the animal companion that had made her anguish less lonely. No doctors appear to have been charged. The Colorado Hospital Association was in the process of piloting a no-opioid policy for the state. She died in June of 2017. She was 30 years of age. She needed help, and instead she was called an addict, and she was shoved aside. There's story after story after story of people who suffered similar fates and took their own lives. Doug Hale of Vermont, you may recall that we spoke with his wife, his widow, and his daughter about Mr. Hale, who was 53 years of age, who was turned away by doctor after clinic after doctor after clinic. They wouldn't give him what he needed. They wouldn't give him what had been prescribed for years. They wouldn't give him, prescribed for him, what helped. Well, I just today heard a, read a story on, on our CKNW website in Vancouver about a 15-year-old British Columbia girl who died of an opioid overdose. And I'm so very sorry this happened to a 15-year-old child. But the 15-year-old child did not die of a medical overdose. And there's a real difference and a distinction between the chronic pain patients who require the assistance and who live in hell and people who require assistance for their addiction. Dr. Thomas Klein joins us. 
He's an American doctor. He's in the Carolinas. Dr. Klein, thank you very much, not only for joining us, but also being a consistent voice supporting patients who are living with this, this, in this hell that they are consigned to by a healthcare system or healthcare systems that are charged with providing help are doing anything but. And the healthcare systems are supported by politicians who see some sort of advantage in all of this, I guess. Hello and bonjour, Roy. Bonjour, Mr. Klein. Thank you for having me on your yeah. show. So yeah, is... it's pretty bad. Uh, you know, all of the people that that I listed on that um, uh, Twitter post that were given to me by hundreds of different people, all would be alive today for the simple want of a safe and effective ancient natural medication opiate pain medications there it 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 it's just um it's just amazing to me as a physician and as a person is being a chronic pain patient in the united states and in canada sentenced by the medical and political establishments which reverses the hippocratic oath to do as much harm as you possibly can it's um it's at a deeper level uh, roy it's based on fear uh once you light a wildfire and i think you have plenty up there in canada especially in the plains it just takes one match and what's happened this time in the five drug wars that we've had in the u.s starting with dwight eisenhower this time there are collateral damage people there are 10 million people with uh, chronic pain bad enough to be on medications. There's 1 million addicts. It's a 10 to 1 ratio. The hangings in Salem, Massachusetts in the 1600s for witches ended when one of the pastors wrote a letter and said, are we going to hang 10 people to find one witch? And that stopped the hangings. They were hanging their neighbors. This is how much fear there was at that time, and there's just as much fear today. There's been so much negative publication by a very, very small group of zealots called the Physicians for Responsible Opiate or Opioid Prescribing, which is an oxymoron. It's really Physicians for Reduction of Opioid Prescribing. They believe in their hearts that the medicine doesn't work for people with long-term pain because nobody's ever done a study to show that's the case. You cannot do a study by having one group of people take pain medicine, the other group not. It's impossible to do a study. would never get past the ethics review boards. So they're standing on that is that it doesn't work. And then they're saying, gee whiz, so many people get addicted and die. It's way too dangerous to use. The statistics in Canada are supplied by American physicians in this group called PROP, which is the nickname for the physicians for responsible prescribing. And you have a PROP member in Canada by the name of David Gerlink. And Gerlink is uh, 
a close and vice president, I believe, of the prop organization in America, and is one of the zealots. An FDA official who was in charge of hiring all the FDA um, reviewers, that's our Food and Drug Administration that controls opiate medication and all others, um, said that these people were the lunatic fringe. These are the patients? And no, excuse me? These are the patients. Are the lunatic no, fringe? The no, the lunatic fringe applies to the uh, physicians for responsible okay. opioid okay. prescribing. Mm-hmm. Um, they have gotten away with murder, and I'm sitting here at my desk surrounded by 700 papers that I am slowly reviewing to get at the truth. And it appears that things are very similar in Canada as they are in the U.S. Dr. Klein, why is it that, why why has the medical profession, why have thousands, hundreds of thousands of physicians, I don't know if I'm, the number's too large, but why haven't doctors in huge numbers pushed back doctors who've been prescribing opioid medication for chronic pain patients who are taking their lives when their medications are uh, taken from them. Doctors have said to patients, I'm not going to risk my practice for you. But why have large numbers of doctors not pushed back and said, this is my job to heal and protect medically. I'm going to do that whether you want me to or not. Yeah, good question. Uh, there's uh, three reasons. Uh, one is American physicians and Canadian physicians have always been gun shy about prescribing uh, pain medicines. That's just the way we're brought up. So when all this starts to come out and it's repeated daily, physicians start to feel guilty, like, you know, I've been doing something wrong. But the most important thing is our federal drug police. You don't have that in Canada. I don't think there's federal drug police anywhere. And they are summarily raiding doctors, as they used to do in the 30s, taking all their medical files away without charging them. And um, some doctors have their practices ended in 12 hours by our DEA, the Federal Drug Police. You put a kind of a fear amongst people like that. It's hard for us to suddenly realize that we're going to lose an entire career. And, you know, we're like coal miners. You know, when they shut the mines or when we get out of practice, we can't do anything else. I know physicians are driving cabs. I mean, they just had no skills. So that's it. It's fear of the DEA, guilt, and a belief that the CDC is an honest organization. Our communicable disease people warn us of terrible epidemics. We always believe them. All of a sudden, they got into the business of opiates. How did this happen? There's a long story about how it happened, but it's improper. The CDC in America is not uh uh, given the legal authority to do anything with prescription drugs, only our Food and Drug Administration. So it's it's a complex story, but you are right. If physicians feel like they're going to be attacked unfairly by the police, and they all need to get together and link arms and say, don't you dare. You know, we're going to hire lawyers. We're going to go to Congress and get these laws changed. The laws were passed in 1970 by Richard Nixon for political reasons to arrest his political enemies and they're still in place, and they are draconian. I read a, a, a female a physician gave her husband a prescription for some Vicodin, very low-level uh, 
narcotic painkiller, didn't write it down properly in her in her notebook. She went to federal prison. One person. So that's the fear. We're oh. we're scared to death. You know. Um, I've heard the word terrified used over and over. Terrified when is it comes a pretty close word. Yeah, you know, it's like the Gestapo. I hate to use these kinds of analogies, but it's the fear that the Gestapo imbued in people. Problem is, we don't know exactly why we're going to be, uh, you know, arrested or raided, because the DEA is interpreting the law differently. Basically, it's real clean cut. If you're prescribing for a legitimate purpose, you're fine. If you're not, then you get arrested. You know, those are the the rare doctors, 35 a year in the U.S., who, who you know, are real crooks. But now they're doing things like saying, well, doctors are prescribing off-label. You know, that's the fear that we have. We don't okay. know what they're going to do next. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, joining us is Barry Ulmer of uh, the Chronic Pain Canada Group, chronicpaincanada.com is uh, the website, CPAC. And Barry's the executive director. We have about three minutes here, Barry. You uh, sent me an email to let me know that the Canadian Pain Society will have a conference May 22nd to May 25th in Montreal, and they've invited Dr. Jane Ballantyne to be a keynote speaker on what does the opioid epidemic mean to pain management. What is Dr. Ballantyne known for as a pain physician? Uh, that's that's a good one, Roy. I, I, the pain physician, I guess, what I would take issue with. But I, in in the United States, actually, by a number of people, they call her no pain Jane, and certainly not in in a in a kind manner. But anyways, she's the one that has actually advocated um, uh, that the intensity of pain doesn't really mean much for to pain patients, and we should go from there. But uh, you know, this conference is is in Montreal, and it's the Canadian Pain Society, but. The really sad part about this, too, is they doubled down on this thing about the opioid epidemic mean to pain management, which we don't have an opioid epidemic. We have an overdose problem. But by doubling down on it, they they have another program uh, called the North American Opioid Crisis, and it's being chaired by Fiona Campbell, the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. And Jane Ballantyne is, is on this panel along with the chiropractor, Jason Busey. The professor from a master university is the editor of the Pain Guide. That's right for uh, opioids for non-cancer pain. So, but Doctor Doctor uh, Ballantyne, let me ask Doctor Klein this: uh, Doctor Ballantyne, known for saying that pain patients just need to essentially suck it up. Yeah, she kind of started all this. She was at the Mass General. She's an anesthesiologist, and I think she really believes this. Um, like other people, but, you know, I believe things too, but I don't go to the FDA and try to get them changed uh, based on no information. Problem is, this is a lot of belief without evidence. How bad are things for the intractable, people with intractable pain in 2018? How bad are things, Dr. Klein? Things are horrible. Um, I've got a Twitter feed now of 17,000 people. 11% 11% of them Canadian, by the way, which is our exact population difference. Uh, and it's just, it's getting worse day by day. Um, it, it's just unimaginable that we as doctors are allowing people to suffer like this. You know, in Guantanamo Bay, they take people down and they torture them for three or four hours, and then they go back to their room and they're fine. 
chronic pain patient is tortured 24 hours a day. I wrote a blog and piece. And these are not people not making up things. These are real diseases. Yeah, I wrote a Rare blog piece wild. on uh, RoyGreenShow.com, and waterboarding is illegal, but torturing by uh, denial of pain medication is perfectly legal. Barry, in about 15 seconds, how bad are things in this country? Uh, I would totally agree with Dr. Klein. They're they're bad here, and, and they're getting worse, and, and uh, these people have, have created a problem of medicine that will be with us for decades, and and people will be suffering for decades, and that's really sad in the 21st. And right now, on both sides of the border, there are people who are literally screaming in pain who are receiving nothing for that pain. Dr. Klein, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for doing what you're doing, and the same to you, Barry. Great to be with you, Roy. More than welcome. All the best, gentlemen. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.